Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a Minnesota mother who lost her son to an overdose shares her message of prevention on this National Recovery Month, the statewide pheasant outlook, and a preview of the Viking season with broadcaster and former Viking Ben Lieber. But first... The usual political grandstanding at the Minnesota State Fair is behind us, but the state's political pace hasn't slowed a bit, according to MNN's Bill Werner. Scott, the new commissioner of the beleaguered State Human Services Department took the reins this week, and Senate Republicans had their first chance to question Jody Harpstead. Former CEO of Lutheran Social Service laid out her plan for her first three months heading the state's largest agency. The theme of my 90-day plan is to rebuild the department in order to rebuild trust with the people of Minnesota. Malacca Republican Andrew Matthews urged Harpstead... Do not take any punitive steps against whistleblowers. Instead, the behaviors of the agency should change their practices to conform to the law. Rochester Republican Carla Nelson told Harpstead she anticipates safeguards so that millions of dollars of overpayments do not happen again. But Nelson says the lingering question is... How long has it been going on? What's the total amount? And who's going to pay? Where's the money coming from? Harpstead responded... That's a very good question. I have the same question. Of course, we're waiting for the review of the whole situation to really get the entire picture of it. And then the question is, what are the potential pathways going forward? The overpayment tally at this point is more than $70 million dollars and the federal government wants that money back. What some call a game-changer this week, in the 7th Congressional District in western Minnesota, former Lieutenant Governor and former State Senator Michelle Fishbach, a Republican from Painesville, announced she will challenge longtime incumbent Democrat Colin Peterson. All indications are it could be a tough battle. Peterson is a seasoned political veteran and arguably the most powerful Minnesotan in Congress as chairman of the all-important-to-farmers House Agriculture Committee. Fishbach is no newcomer to politics either. She served a number of terms in the state Senate, then got statewide recognition as a Republican lieutenant governor serving with Democratic Governor Mark Dayton. Fishbach says about her Democratic opponent, Congressman Colin Peterson. Colin will call himself a moderate, but really he is supporting the liberal Pelosi agenda. Seventh District voted overwhelmingly for President Trump. They are conservatives. They need someone who is going to represent their values and fight for their values in Congress. And Colin Peterson is not doing that anymore by supporting the Pelosi agenda. Minnesota DFL Party Chairman Ken Martin responds. Colin does not uh, uh, toe the party line. Uh, He puts his uh, constituents ahead of party, uh, and people in western Minnesota know that. I'm not sure how they're going to take to a hardcore ideologue like Michelle Fishbach, who definitely toes uh, the party line and is uh, fairly uh, far right. Fishbach says the issues in the upcoming campaign against Peterson. I think number one is going to be immigration. He um, In the district, he said he supported the wall in Washington, D.C. He voted against funding the wall. I think immigration is going to be a big one. Uh, the people in the 7th District want to see the wall. They want to see comprehensive immigration reform. And I think that just the supporting the Trump agenda is important for the people's 7th District, or they wouldn't have voted 30-plus percent for him. And I think that's another one where Colin Peterson has voted 85 percent of the time against 
Trump policies. DFL party chair Martin fires back. Donald Trump and the Republicans are engaged in a reckless trade war that's devastating Minnesota's farmers and our agricultural economy. Both Dave Hughes and Michelle Fishbach would doubtless be another rubber stamp for Donald Trump's disastrous trade policies that are hurting rural Minnesota and creating serious economic uncertainty for farmers and small towns throughout our state. So those are the rhetorical battle lines. Now let's get a take on the political realities from Carleton College analyst Stephen Shear. What's your assessment of how formidable a challenge this is? Um, I know there have been some, maybe for lack of better term, sacrificial lambs that have been been put up against Colin Peterson of late. Uh, Is this different? Well, yes, this is different. This is a quality candidate who has statewide name recognition and uh, a lot of support within the Republican Party and also, crucially, support from the Trump presidential campaign. Colin Peterson is, I guess, what you would call a moderate Democrat. Uh, However, Michelle Fishbach is painting him as not as moderate as he says he is because he supports the Pelosi agenda. Does that get any traction with 7th District voters? The 7th District is the most politically conservative district in the U.S. House that is held by a Democrat. And so it takes considerable political skill to hold it if you are a Democrat. And Colin Peterson, as chair of the Ag Committee, has the prestige in Congress and the political experience to make him a formidable opponent this time as well. Now let's talk about the, the broader picture of Minnesota and, and being in Donald Trump's uh, crosshairs. Well, the 7th District is crucial to the uh, Donald Trump campaign uh, in their attempt to turn Minnesota into a Trump state. Uh, Trump carried that district by 31 points in 2016, and certainly he's got dozens of staff people already in the state uh, working to try and enhance his margins in Minnesota so he can carry it. And the 7th District will be central to Trump's plans that helps Michelle Bishbach in a big way. I hesitate to ask you this, but I will. Um, at this stage of the game, so early on, and we're quite a ways from the election, uh, can Michelle Fishbach pull this off, do you think? Well, already one rating service, uh, Larry Sabato's uh, crystal ball out of the University of Virginia, has called this a toss-up race. So uh, I guess I would say, based on that analysis, uh, she does have a serious opportunity here. So this is something Colin Peterson, he needs to really consider this a serious, uh, a serious challenge. Right. For Colin Peterson, this sort of race is all hands on deck. Uh, this is a quality challenger who will be well-funded and will have a presidential campaign uh, supporting her and helping her in the district. Uh, that's a lot to combat, and that's what Colin Peterson has to fight against. That's Carleton College political analyst Stephen Shear. Scott, the 7th District U.S. House race in Minnesota is shaping up to be a contest that could well get national attention in 2020. And, of course, that's a story we'll be tracking every step of the way. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. 
We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. September is National Recovery Month. Lori Lewis is a Minnesota mother who lost her son to an opioid overdose in 2014. She's helping health partners with a new public awareness campaign highlighting the dangers of opioids, especially among young adults. I spoke with Lori recently about how she's turning her personal loss into an opportunity to help others. I lost uh, my oldest son, Ryan, five years ago on July 10th in 2014 from an overdose. Um, He started with uh, pills that he got out of our medicine cabinet um, for our previous back surgery that I had. Um, And we didn't think we had to lock them up. So that's my strong point is, um, you know, making sure people lock up their medications. Um, So he got his hands on those and then it quickly turned to, um, to heroin. And um, even with aggressive therapy, it, um, you know, we lost him. So um, I have three other kids and my husband, and we're still trying to figure out, um, still trying to figure out what happened and what we could have done differently. And and so that's why I'm very involved on different levels to, um, you know, try and prevent this, educate, um, you know, have parents, grandparents, siblings, neighbors, communities uh, be involved in breaking the stigma so people can ask for help and get what they need. You know, Lori, time and time again, unfortunately, I've heard from parents and other family members who, who say just what you're saying. Uh, you know, I, I look back at it and I wonder what we could have done differently. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the insight that you have from that. Obviously, these opioids, uh, the call of these opioids is so powerful um, that it's almost difficult to imagine that anything differently could be done, uh, at least on the parts of, of parents who have lost kids. What can be done differently? Yeah, and I ask myself that multiple times a day. So a couple of things that I, um, I'm a strong advocate for is safely disposing of the unused medications, um, and there's ways to do that, um, um, as well as keeping medications locked up, and when I mean locked up in a safe that they can't get into, so a key and an entry code, uh, because, I mean, our son got into one of our secure, um, well, what we thought was secure safe. Um, But it's not even the opioids, it's even over-the-counter medications or other addictive medications. I mean, kids will get Robitussin and do what they call as robo-balling. So any medications now, even over-the-counter, we lock up in our safe. there is one quick, easy way that you can get rid of medications, and actually Health Partners has been dispensing them. It's called Deterra pouches. And um, when you're done with your medications, you just put it in there um, with a little bit of water, shake them up. It's biodegradable. It's safe if your pets get in the garbage, your children, and you don't even have to wait to go to a um, safety disposal box. So that's, a, that's a, I mean, 100% prevention right there. 
you know, Lori, our, our legislature has been looking at the problem of uh, opioid addiction and how people are getting their hands on opioids. Obviously, there's a there's a number of different factors here. There's the pharmaceutical companies. Um, there's the uh, physicians who are prescribing opioids to people for pain, which, uh, from what I understand, has been cut back on somewhat. I'm curious, um, what do you think the legislature, uh, how has the legislature done here on a state level uh, to try to prevent these kinds of opioid overdoses, and what more would you like to see them do? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, like I said, I'm involved with a bunch of different organizations, and right now there's, uh, there is a call to action out there because of um, Casey Jo um, Schulte, her bill that was passed, and um, Purdue Pharma wants to settle for way less than we wanted to. So, um, you know, we really, they created this um, mess, and we really need them to step up and pay the money that, um, you know, the billions of dollars that, was settled on so that more treatment facilities um, can be built for people that need it um, and education for families to try and get this epidemic under control because we really, we need to act aggressively as a community and everybody join forces on this. Um, but they definitely, um, the legislators been, you know, very involved, but not quite to the point where we need it to be. You know, Lori, too many parents have lost kids to opioid overdoses, but not all of them have the the fortitude or the willingness to become outspoken advocates for prevention. Uh, What gives you the strength to do that? You know what? It's my son, Ryan. I will always continue to fight for him, Um, and I know he would be wanting me to do the same thing because he told us several times he did not want to be like that and what could we do or what could he do and and I mean one time he just said to my husband dad am, am I ever going to get better you know and um so he he inspires me and I will continue until I take my last breath and what message do you have for parents out there and kids out there that might hear uh what you have to say as somebody who's been through uh, the worst imaginable uh, outcome of, of an opioid addiction and overdose. What, what's your message to folks out there? Besides the safety disposal of the medications, I mean, that's just, like I said, simple 101, but um, we all have to break the stigma of this because we're a very active um, family in our community. I mean, you know, my husband was a coach. Um, we, you know, checked on our kids if they were going anywhere, and when they get with their friends, they, it does, they're in a secure place, they feel, and, um, and they're going to do what they want to do. So, I mean, just educate your kids, too, and know where they're going. And, but as far as for a, a community, stop the stigma. I mean, this isn't somebody who I'm guilty of, too, is, you know, in the 60s laying in a gutter, you know, homeless and everything. These are professionals. These are our kids. These are our clergymen. Um, you know, we need to just say, how can I help? And especially for those families that are struggling when they call me, they just need, they need to talk through it and they need some help because it's so hard to reach out for help. So there's enough resources out there right now. And, um, you know, I always take any call I can. So. And, Lori, do you have any, uh, in terms of those resources, what is a good first step for someone to take if they think that there's a problem or that they want to uh, get some help? Yeah, actually, um, 
there are many organizations. There's Minnesota Recovery Connections, Steve Rumler, Hope Network. There's Thrive Family Addiction and Support. Um, in fact, um, September 14th, Minnesota Recovery at the State Capitol in Minnesota is having their um, recovery walk. That would be a great place to go for all kinds of resources and for instant support right there and um, even potentially immediately getting in somewhere. Because the thing is, is when somebody says, I am ready, we need to jump on that. Because if you wait a day, they could be dead. And that sounds terrible, but that is just the truth right now. Thank you again to my special guest, Lori Lewis. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The results of the latest DNR Pheasant Index show varied opportunities across the state this year. Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. When the Minnesota pheasant season opens on October 12th, hunters are likely to find some areas with plenty of pheasants and other areas where the birds will be tougher to find, judging by results of the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources annual roadside pheasant survey. Here to talk about some of the results is Tim Lyons. He's an upland game research scientist with the Minnesota DNR. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the highlights from this year's report. Um, this year they're down a little bit, um, kind of what we expected given the, you know, this spring, kind of the winter kind of persisted a little bit longer. In the spring there was more snow around, uh, and then throughout a lot of the state uh, it was really wet. Um, so we kind of expected that numbers might be down this year, um, and they were. And it wasn't terrible, though. Um, uh, overall, about a 17% decline, and looking at some of the, you know, finer details of the breakdown of our counts, uh, it seems it probably came mostly from just maybe delayed or reduced breeding success. And you know, when we look um, at when we look at that seventeen percent decrease, uh, how does this compare, I guess, to like the average or, or other years? So last year, so it's lower than last year. Um, it is down. I say I would say probably about ten uh, percent from our ten-year average, and it's down substantially from the long-term average. So going back to nineteen fifty-five. You know, these changes from one year to the next, that's almost always due to some sort of weather event, maybe. When you go out in the field to survey this, do you do, like, so many miles of, of road, or how does that work? Yeah, so uh, it's a, actually a pretty big collaborative effort. Um, the Upland Game biologist in our office, Lindsay Messenger, she's the one that coordinates uh, reaching out to area wildlife folks, biologists, uh, some of the wildlife law enforcement folks, as well as just uh, some volunteers. Um, within each county, there's at least one to, uh, I think, some counties have as many as four routes. Um, they're 20, standardized 25-mile routes. They've been surveying most of them uh, throughout the state since the same routes since the 50s. Um, there have been some small changes to routes over years as roads get paved over. Um, traffic becomes heavier on those areas. Um, but, yeah, these are the same standardized 25-mile routes um, that folks do, yeah, have done for a while. All right. And Tim, too, you know, when we look at the index, uh, let's kind of break the state down a little bit. Was there any areas of the state or regions of the state uh, that I guess are, are doing better than others? Again, given the how pervasive the rain was and severe winter was this year, uh, most places are down. Um, the east central region, so a little bit north of the metro area, north and west there, um, as well as the south central region. Um, those areas actually saw some small increases. Um, so 
Uh, it's not necessarily been uniform. The southeast was definitely the hardest hit, I think, by this weather. But, yeah, so there is a lot of variability throughout the state. Well, lots of good information, Tim. Was there anything else you wanted to add that I didn't hit on today? Um, no, I think the only thing is that, um, you know, the, just maybe that uh, there's still a chance that, you know, just because these counts are down kind of widespread doesn't mean that there still aren't good opportunities out there for hunting. Um, you know, a lot of areas were underwater, but not everywhere. Um, so I think if hunters want to try and find uh, fields that maybe dried out faster or escaped flooding altogether, those should still have had good, really good brood production, uh, should still hold a lot of birds uh, come this fall. Thanks again to my guest, Tim Lyons, an Upland Game Research Scientist with the Minnesota DNR. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. We'll preview the upcoming Minnesota Vikings season when Minnesota Matters returns. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, and son. Learn fast, F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911, F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of... Your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother... Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Vikings opened the season this weekend hosting the Atlanta Falcons at U.S. Bank Stadium. Former Vikings linebacker and current football broadcaster Ben Lieber joins MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm to preview the 2019 Purple Season. Uh, first of all, what was your impression? You watched a lot of practice in camp. You watched the four exhibition games. Um, a little bit different sense this year from when you and I did this interview a year ago when Super Bowl was the talk. <laughs> You know what's weird is all of a sudden now we've sh- at least I've shifted from having concerns about the offense to having concerns about the defense mm. for the Vikings. Um, you know what I saw the offense during the preseason, uh, I liked it. I liked the identity. I liked this formulation that we're going to stick to the run game and kind of wear people down. I like um, the fact that Kirk is going to use ball distribution a lot better, I think, than he did last year, and really have have faith and trust that he's got a group of tight ends that he can throw to, uh, a group of wide receivers he can grow, he can throw to, and then we've got some really talented backs that he can throw the ball to the backfield to. So all of a sudden now I'm like, okay, I'm not as worried about the offense as I was a year ago, and now I'm kind of shifting into the defensive part of it, which is crazy to think that we have 10 starters back, but yet I think that there are some big question marks there. Uh, how are our corners going to look? And I'm not just talking about our depth. I'm talking about our starting corners. Um, how is the interior of our defensive line going to hold up against the run? How are they going to do the consistently throughout the whole season? Um, and are we going to make enough plays 
that we don't have to rely on scoring from our offense. You know, it's not a great takeaway defense. Um, they need to do a better job on that. They're great on third down. Uh, they weren't great against the run last year. Um, so those are my question marks. It's kind of flipped flip-flop from offense to defense. Now, special teams uh, for years seems to have uh, always been in question, and uh, it was a little bit chaotic for about a three-week stretch again this preseason. Yeah. They've settled, it looks like, on their guys. What do you think? Well, I guess it remains to be seen. You know, it's one of those nuanced things when they talk about holding where – I, you know, it's, I guess it's more important than I thought it was. And I guess maybe it's a harder skill than I thought it was. Um, I think they call them uh, ticks. So when the ball is put down and the guys, the guys marking it, the holders marking where the ball is and the ball snapped, you know, it, it's got to be right on that mark. And that's where the kicker wants it. And, you know, when I say ticks, it's also the angle at which they hold it. You know, certain wind conditions and certain angles, they want they want to be one tick to the right, one tick to the left. And and that's the details that I never knew about before until this training camp. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden now it's the, of the utmost importance that you make the kicker feel confident that the ball is going to be exactly where he wants it. And I guess that wasn't consistently done. Um, and it sounds like it looked like Matt Wilde improved as a punter when they bought they brought Vedvik in, um, but it certainly wasn't enough to overcome, I guess, the the lack of holding. And so it's <laughs> you know two of the three spots have been changed over from last year. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, who would have figured a punter would lose his job because he was no good at holding on right. extra points yeah. and field goals? Strange, but it is what it is. They did get an NFL uh, Pro Bowl caliber punter, it looks like. We'll see if uh, if he can get uh, the job done. Colquitt, I mean, there's been, what, like 25 Colquitts that have kicked in the league, yeah. so we'll see uh, We'll see how this guy does. Um, the division, let's talk about the division. Um, the NFL uh, opened on Thursday with, uh, with the Bears-Packers, an in-division game. Uh, what do you think of the north well i think it's shaping to be one of the more competitive you know divisions in football um collectively i mean of course you you got to talk about chicago are they going to develop enough offensively i think that's the biggest thing is is trubisky going to take the next steps to be a quarterback that can get the ball down the field consistently and not be sort of a gimmicky offense. Because um, I think those gimmicky offenses, are, they're, they work, uh, especially when the, when the offense and the head coach are new. But now everybody's got film on you. They've game planned for you all offseason. Can you can you put up the points? And and remember, this is a historic defense last year that got a ton of takeaways. And and they're taking those that ball away and converting to points. That's going to probably come down to more of the regression of the mean, and not that they're not going to be formidable because that front that front seven is phenomenal. They're big, they're physical, uh, they're violent. Um, that's going to remain the same. But can they take the ball away? Their offense needs them to take the ball away, and if they don't do that, I think they're going to slide back down. Interesting. Uh, back to Chicago because they're the defending champs. I think one of the things, at least in my opinion, that gets overlooked is the defending champ. They now this year play the first place schedule. Remember yeah. last year, it was like every week I'd look and like, well, the. Bears aren't playing anybody. Oh, the Bears aren't. So I'm not saying that they're no good, but I'm saying that they did benefit from an easier schedule than everyone in the division. This year, they're playing all of last year's division champs. Yeah, and and I will defend them a little bit last year and say that, yes, they had an easier schedule, but, man, they beat the crap out of they some did. teams. I mean, and that's even looking at the Vikings games, it's like you could tell that we were just overmatched. And so uh, talent-wise, for sure. Now, are they going to get tested a little bit more? Absolutely. Um, 
But isn't it crazy how the NFL is like that? You just never know. These these teams turn over every year. And I think, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I think only a quarter or less than a quarter of the teams from the playoffs the year before ever make the playoffs again the following year. So there's a, a lot of parity. We don't know who's going to rise up. We don't know which, what's going what's to happen with injuries to key players, and that's why it's all so exciting. Don't know where the summer went, but we're ready for football. Yeah, ready for it, man. All right, thank you. Yeah, no problem. That's former Viking linebacker Ben Lieber and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.